We are still more than a week away from the summer solstice, but it certainly feels like the dog days. This week, the weather has been mercilessly hot and humid. Also, primary day is nearly upon us, and Saratoga racetrack tickets are on sale for the first time in almost two years. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. The mayor of Akron, Ohio, put out a list of the four finalists, and Eric Hawkins was on there. And we'll take a look at how Depression-era redlining in the city of Albany in 1938 led to a stark and enduring racial divide that has persisted for decades since. You know, if that doesn't capture what systemic racism manifests in segregation, like, I, I don't know what does, you know? This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler to go over the top headlines. Uh, Let's start in Albany here. The word has spread all the way from Akron, Ohio, that police chief Eric Hawkins might be in the running for a police chief gig out there. Uh, What did we find out about that? Yeah, as first reported by our friends at the Akron Beacon Journal, and thanks very much to them for the tip, the mayor of Akron, Ohio, put out a list of the four finalists, and Eric Hawkins was on there, which uh, came as a surprise to many in the city. Whether or not it came as a a surprise to Mayor Kathy Sheehan is something that the mayor tried to downplay a little bit. She did acknowledge when Rob Gavin, our reporter, um, called her up on Tuesday that she had discussed this development that day. Um, leaving open the question of whether the chief had apprised her of the fact that he had applied for this position, which he did back in April based on his uh, cover letter. Look, uh, it's no surprise that a small city chief of police might be scouted for uh, positions like this that come open. Akron would be a step up in terms of uh, population size from Albany for Chief Hawkins. But At the same time, he would be leaving a post that he's had for three years now. And he, if he takes off for Akron, um, he would be doing it as the city contends with a a serious spike in, you know, gun violence and, and other serious crimes that we've spoken about on this podcast, unfortunately, a lot in recent weeks. Sticking with uh, reporter Rob Gavin, another story that he has been pursuing up in Boston Spa, there's a murder trial underway for a Johnstown Deli owner who's accused of killing one of his employees. Can you tell us what's the latest there? Georgios Kakavelos uh, took the stand this week. He faces um, murder charges related to the death of Elizabeth uh, Lamont, 22 years old who was bludgeoned to death and strangled uh, in October 2019 
allegedly by Cacavelos and admittedly by Jimmy Duffy, who was a much younger employee of Cacavelos, as was the, the murder victim. Prosecutors say that Cacavelos uh, paid Duffy to assist in this murder because Lamont was threatening to bring a Labor Department complaint against Cacabellos and his business. Cacabellos, in his first day on the stand, said that he was stunned and horrified when he walked in to see Duffy after having killed Lamont and that only went along with the covering up of the crime, the, the cleaning up of the crime scene and the, the rather ham-handed disposal of Ms. Lamont's body because he was terrified of Jimmy Duffy, who he basically described as a, as a psychopath who had threatened him and, and threatened his family. Now, the cross-examination of Cacavelos that, as we are speaking, is still upcoming is going to be very interesting. Prosecutors, no doubt, will point out that Cacavelos had ample opportunity to alert the authorities that he had walked in on a murder that had just occurred and missed every opportunity to do so between the time when it occurred and when he and uh, Mr. Duffy were arrested. All right. Well, our Rob Gavin will continue to follow that trial, uh, still ongoing. Uh, This week, the governor said that once we get to 70 percent vaccination throughout the state, it's going to be back to life as normal. Uh, Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. And it's important just to note that the governor was saying this as the state was at 68.6%, you know, which is, which is kind of like saying, if you can just walk a few more inches, uh, you, you will reach your destination. So So um, close. yes, I know. But yeah, the the governor said on Monday that once 70% is achieved, we will be back to life as normal. So having gone out for a beer last night, um, I, and one of my, uh, favorite neighborhood bars, I can tell you that it definitely feels very much like a return to normal. You know, the the governor said that the state expects to reach that level uh, within the next week. And for for all we know, as we sit here, we could have actually hit that mark. We are approaching normality, but we're not there yet. Well, it definitely uh, makes things look brighter for the upcoming summer and some summer fun that we typically have around here. Uh, One last thing, and this one is Probably going to please the Yankee fans in our listenership and our audience, but uh, longtime Yankee shortstop Derek Jeter is getting inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame finally, but uh, it got pushed back a couple of months. Why and what can Yankee fans look forward to? Uh, yeah, well, as we talk about reopening, the induction of each year's class in the Hall of Fame uh, out in Cooperstown is usually held in late July. The ceremony itself is big and open and, of course, draws thousands of fans. This year was anticipated to be huge because of, of course, New York's affection for Jeter. I'm a Red Sox fan, so I'm kind of shut out of this. But I know friends of mine who were expecting to go, who were heartbroken at news that the ceremony was initially going to be kept very small So now, instead of late July, the ceremony is going to be pushed to a couple of weeks after Labor Day, and it will be uh, held, uh, and there will be a ticketed set number of attendees. So it will not be a kind of y'all come mass event, but it'll feel a lot more like a traditional induction ceremony. So tickets 
are supposed to uh, be available second week of, uh, of July, but uh, yet another sign that things are uh, approaching normal, if not there totally. Indeed, I know a lot of Yankees fans were very excited. All right, one final thing before I let you go. So this past week, the Times Union published a special series on redlining and segregation in the city of Albany. Now, we're going to hear more about this coming up on the podcast, but Casey, can you introduce this for us? Yeah, this is a project that Masara Makati and Eduardo Medina, two very talented young reporters at the Times Union, have been working on for months and it looks at the jumping off point is the the process of redlining that the city went through like lots of american cities during the depression and it was a process that that locked in in many ways the the prejudices and biases of bankers and real estate professionals in terms of determining what neighborhoods were hazardous for investment for real estate investment, meaning, meaning, for example, the writing of mortgages. Now, in 1938, the neighborhoods in Albany that were deemed to be hazardous, that is, the neighborhoods that were redlined, were uh, the neighborhoods that we now know as West Hill, Arbor Hill, and the South End. Back then, they were uh, dominated by white European immigrants, you know, Italians, Polish, you name it. But then over the course of the decades that followed, they became the areas in Albany, really in the capital region, with the highest concentration of black residents. So Masara and Eduardo took a very hard, long look at how these divisions, the divisions that were kind of codified by the redlining process, have remained to this day. If you look at that map from 1938, those redlined areas are the ones that are the most economically challenged and the ones that are facing sort of the the heaviest burden of the results of disinvestment by government, even by private industry in this city. As I noted in an editor's note, a community that fails to understand how it got to where it is today can't realistically hope to deal with its current problems and tends to imperil its future. So the the redlining series started off by looking at redlining, but then moved on to look at educational inequity, environmental hazards, and then of course the the problem of food deserts where people who uh, are more likely not to have cars have to travel a great distance, usually by public transportation, merely to buy food. Um, And the final story, which is coming up this weekend, will look at some of the solutions that might help bridge these these inequities, you know. All right. Thank you for that introduction, Casey. We will have more coming up later on the podcast about the Redlining Project. Thank you for joining me, and we will check back in with you next week. Great, Jess. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. And now let's take a closer look at the Times Union reporting series that we've called A City Divided. It's a deep dive into the ways in which New York's capital city was splintered along racial lines. The reporters behind the project are Masara Makati and Eduardo Medina. I'll let them take it from here.
So I wonder if I can start with a question for you, Masara. Go for it. You got here to Albany before I did. And so I'm wondering, like, when you first got to Albany, what was your first impression in terms of, like, how different parts of the city looked? Like, was it jarring to you as it was for me? Or what, what was your impression of that? I was shocked. I lived in Menands at the time, and I had little puppy Otis. And every day after work, I would drive him to Washington Park, um, the dog park out there. And I would drive down Henry Johnson Boulevard to get to Washington Park. And I just remember realizing there's this neighborhood that I'm driving through where predominantly what I see is black people walking down the streets, walking on the sidewalks, driving around. And then I cross this bridge and it's like I get transported into a different world after I cross the bridge. Yeah. you know, I grew up near Cleveland. I've lived in Columbus. I've been to Chicago. I've been to LA. I've been to New York City. I've been to Paris. Like, I've been to some pretty segregated cities, but for some reason, there was something about Albany that was so jarring to me. It felt so much more severe here. Maybe because it was more visible, you know, like yeah. you can't avoid it. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I relate to that too. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. A city and state that like obviously has its own history of horrible racism and segregation mm-hmm. but like when I first drove up from Birmingham to Albany and I got to Albany and I'm driving through Henry Johnson Boulevard and getting to my apartment on State Street near Washington Park I mean it, the the difference in in and you know how the roads looked the the red X's on the buildings like it was just so immediately uh, different and, and jarring like it's just it's just no one can deny it you know mm-hmm. well when you were growing up in Birmingham was it were you exposed to the segregation a lot the same way that you'd have to be exposed to it when you're driving around Albany or, or what was that like no and I think that's what makes Albany so especially jarring like Birmingham there's lots of suburbs and even within the city like it's a bigger city and so it's just less visible mm-hmm. like here I mean there are red X's right smack in front of the doors on the buildings that are abandoned. And, you know, as we would come to know later, a lot of those buildings with red X's are in neighborhoods that were redlined that are in predominantly black neighborhoods. And like, it's just so apparent, more apparent than any other place I've been to. We started doing a bit of research. Like even when I first got here, like some of the reporting I did, like one study showed that, you know, Albany had one of the worst disparities between homeownerships among like black residents and white residents in, in, in the country. Like it was the second worst, according to one study. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the numbers bear that out too. Like it's just, this, it's particularly a problem here, I think more so than, than in a lot of other cities. That's what's interesting about it is that segregation exists everywhere. But for some reason, in Albany, it's so much more drastic in terms of socioeconomic opportunity. But I'll tell you what, I grew up in Ohio, which was a state up in the north, and I didn't know what redlining was until Ta-Nehisi Coates' case for reparations as the yes. Atlantic. Yes. So it's not really talked about ever. When Something that was really nice in reporting of this is that residents who we spoke to, you know, long time, older residents, they were so, many of them were so willing and like grateful to finally have a chance to like talk about all this you know it's just something mm-hmm. that people seem to be really aware of and I don't know I just thought that was so telling that it wasn't this 
thing that people were like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, of course, everyone knows what we're talking about. It's just visible here in Albany. Residents understand it and know it too. And what was really telling when talking to all of our sources for the story was that even though redlining was outlawed in the 60s, there was still, to this day, there's still this underlying understanding of it's really difficult to live in these other areas. People in these other areas don't necessarily want us as Black people to be there. There are all of these microaggressions really or informal policies and practices that are still being upheld to keep black people out of predominantly white neighborhoods whether we're talking about within the city or as Jim Bolden would know in the suburbs yes exactly Jim Bolden like when I spoke to him about this project at first it took us like 10 minutes for him to tell me, oh, by the way, I used to live in Colony. And, you know, I said, oh, how was that? And he's like, oh, I only lived for three years. Uh, and then we started talking about other stuff. But then I wanted to circle back and ask him, like, well, why did you only live in, you know, a, a suburb that's considered, you know, nice and, and uh, you know, relaxed and pleasant? Like, why did you leave this place, this neighborhood after three years so quickly? Uh, at first he was a bit shy, but then he opened up and he said, that he left just because of like blatant racism. His his second grade daughter came back home one day and told him that she'd been called the N-word and that the white kids were refusing to hold her hands while walking from class to class in a line. Like just blatant, outright, disgusting, horrible racism that this child was experiencing, his child was experiencing. What year was that? That was 1976. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that's so recent. That's, that's extremely recent. And but there are stories even more recent than that. Oh, well, I mean, for sure. Yeah. Sam Johnson, Reverend John Jack Johnson's son, um, he was really popular and, and pretty much famous in the South End. He lives in Loudonville now. And he said that you can just tell that white neighbors are, keeping an eye on you mm, so yeah. they'll probably ask kind of more intrusive questions so if you get a new car they'll be like oh where did you get the car how much did it cost blah 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 yeah, and yeah. I'm skeptical that a black man could have a nice new car or keeping an eye on how you're treating your property and so there are all these microaggressions that still exist today and probably macro too um yeah that really make sure to make black people feel uncomfortable and unwanted in these areas and i think something that um i know that i and really both of us tried to be really cognizant of and moving forward in this project is that that systemic racism yes meant that a lot of black people don't have the option to leave the neighborhoods that they were born in and that they grew up in. Mm. But it also means that there are plenty of Black people who do have the option but don't want to leave because they don't want to experience being the only Black family on a street or in a neighborhood or in a suburb. Yeah, yes, exactly. Like, And, and, and also something we wanted to emphasize is despite all these challenges all this systemic racism that we'll get more into later there were still people who found a way to, to you know succeed and to build wealth 
And yes, it was rare, but despite all these challenges, like there were a handful of residents who like overcame that. And I think that's also worth showing, not only to show that, you know, yes, they did succeed, but to show like just how much, how hard it was to get that house like Jim Bolden did in Albany and to fix it up. And I I think that was also worth uh, showcasing in these stories. Yeah. And that even after you get that house and after you've achieved that so-called status, it's still not enough for you to be accepted like John Jennings. Right. Yes. John and John Jennings. (laughs) I mean, that his story. We're obsessed with. We're obsessed with. I mean, I hate to bring up Alabama again, but I'm going to like uh, my home city, Birmingham, has its own horrible, incredibly disgusting and wretched history with bombings like the sixth Street mm. church bombing comes to mind and it's this these horrible racist terrorist attacks but i did not expect to come to albany and to learn of a similar type of bombing involving a black man who wanted to live in a predominantly white neighborhood in a home that he saved up forty thousand dollars to buy like it, it was it was incredible yeah before he could even move into the home it had caught fire and um, he couldn't move into that house anymore. And the fire department, or was it the police department, who said that it was a suspicious fire. So right. yeah. the Jennings family is is convinced that it was arson and that it was a message to him that you as a black man are not welcome in this white neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And like speaking, we spoke to John Jennings, you know, descendants, his, his grandchildren, and, and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren that's right and what was particularly powerful uh to me i think was i mean a family does not forget that over one generation or two or three like that 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 stays and that that painful stinging feeling of this vicious racist terrorist attack basically that happened on their home that, that stays with a family and, and that pain lingers not over just you know the jennings descendants but uh, over a city, really, because other residents brought that story up too. It, it was just this, it's just this painful mark in Albany. What was particularly striking to me was that after the home that he had bought in Buckingham Lake was, was burned down, he bought a home in Pine Hills instead, which is also a predominantly white neighborhood and definitely was at the time that he bought the house. Mm. And um, his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren all stayed in the neighborhood Mm. and to this day his great-granddaughter jasmine higgins looks around her neighborhood and sees only one other black family and they were a recent addition they just moved in a few years ago so when she was growing up her family was the only black family and so after what four generations Uh, i know that hasn't changed I mean, if, if that doesn't, you know, if that doesn't capture what systemic racism manifests and segregation, and segregation like, I, I don't know what does, you know. After the break, more on a city divided. Masara sits in on a class with a teacher at a South End school who works to empower his students in an education system designed to marginalize their experience. I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. 
Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. We're talking about a city divided on this episode. Reporters Masara Makati and Eduardo Medina did a months-long exploration of how the city of Albany became so starkly divided across racial lines. As part of the probe, Masara took a look at how education in Albany has been affected by ongoing segregation and systemic racism. Throughout the entirety of reporting the redlining project, the guiding question for me was, we're segregated, so what? And so when you're thinking about how, for example, there are plenty of Black residents who choose to live in Arbor Hill, the South End, and West Hill, um, you know, they're not trapped there. It's not necessarily that they can't get out. You know, and they choose to live there because they don't want to be the only ones in a white neighborhood. That's a really stressful experience to have. And so then the question becomes whether you choose to stay in these predominantly black neighborhoods or you're forced to stay in them because of systemic obstacles. Why is it that the quality of life in predominantly black neighborhoods is so different than the quality of life in predominantly white neighborhoods. That's where Eduardo and I started looking into other elements of what segregation means. How does that impact residents' day-to-day lives? And so that is food deserts, or as some people like to call it, food apartheid, because they're set up by design. They're not a natural phenomenon like deserts are and you have uh, environmental racism, and you have education. We see time and time again that, you know, move to the suburbs. The suburbs have great school districts for your kids. Well, why is that? You know, the suburbs are predominantly white, especially the suburbs around Albany. They only range from 2 to 6% black, 2% being in Bethlehem, which is probably one of, you know, arguably one of the best school districts in the area. That's what I wanted to focus on is what can a quality educational experience look like for students of color? Why do we have a gap in the graduation rate for students of color versus their white peers? Or why do we have a gap in test scores? All of these questions. And from talking to different teachers who have worked in public school districts, And also talking to students who have gone through public school, private school, charter school, you name it. It always depended on how the teachers treated them and how much the teachers believed in them. 
And believing in the meaning, believing in their potential, but also believing their stories and their experiences. So you have studies that show that black girls get punished at a much higher rate or at a disproportionate rate than their white peers in schools. Bring them out, bring them out, bring them out, bring them out. It's hard to yell. What team Baraka's in the house? Let's go. Let's go, seventh grade. Let's go, Mr. Griff. Who we with? This is Team Baraka. Say, Baraka, 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 Baraka. Y'all, Griff, we got everybody on camera, though? We got everybody on camera, though? You come across a teacher like Jonathan Lajas and you just see something so special about him in the sense that he, first of all, relates to the kids. He knows their experience. He's Afro-Latino. He grew up in Arbor Hill and he knows what their lives and experiences are like. You know, it's like, look, I know that based off of the way that I went through my educational experience, that if you're gonna go through the same experience that I went through, then you're going to run into, you know, similar identity crises. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like you're gonna wonder like where you fit, where you belong in these classrooms. You know what I mean? In this story of history, you know what I mean? And so I think so that- So Jonathan Lajas is- a social studies teacher for seventh and eighth graders at Kip Albany Community Charter School. Early opposition to enslavement. There were whites who opposed the enslavement of Africans as unfair and unjust. So there were whites, there were Europeans in America who left England because they were being persecuted for their religion and they came to the Americas to seek a new beginning, a new way of life. So I spent about two days with Lajas in his home. He was teaching remotely at the time, um, but he goes back and forth between remote and in-person. And the school's actually located in the South End. Um, he, he lives in Arbor Hill currently. And when I was observing Lajas' teaching, I think what really struck me was just how much he empowered students by rooting their education in their own experiences. When you say that Africans were free of their enslavers, but were free with nothing, when Juneteenth came, or so we all gonna be celebrating Juneteenth a month from now, right? Um, here's the one note I do want to make with you guys. There was a fear. The fear was that if Africans were emancipated, that they were going to seek revenge on the enslavers. That in fact was not the case at all. Once the last of the Africans who were enslaved were emancipated in Galveston, Texas, Africans went in search of their families. So what does that say about the value? Right? Family, community. Okay? So Juneteenth is also a celebration of family and community, right? Um, and so we have to make sure that we make that note, okay? You can see just by the way he interacts with the students throughout the entirety of the class, that there is that connection and that bond with the students. So whether it's the music that he's using to hype the students up at the beginning of class, he was playing a TI song, or whether it's um, chatting with one of the students about, you know, if they saw the basketball game last night and did, did he see AD dominate, or asking another student like, are you 
prepping for graduation this weekend? Is that why you have your hair wrapped in silk? And there's just this real affection and love that he speaks to his students with that it's hard to miss. You can't miss that. You know, he's firm. He expects a lot out of his students. He has very high standards, but he balances it out with this friendship and this love. You got to build relationships so you understand what your students' needs are, right? And then from there, craft your lessons and bring all of this stuff, all these theories and everything into practice to try to make sure that the students feel like, one, they are seen, they are heard, you're holding space to get their insight, they can bring their family mm-hmm. into the instruction, they see themselves in the instruction, mm-hmm. so the faces that they're seeing are faces that they can relate to, they can connect with, they can right. you know respond to. And he also has really close relationships with the students' family members. I mean, I spent two days with him and he had called multiple family members, parents, grandparents, you know, to discuss how the students were performing in class or whether they were showing up to class or um, what their reading assignment was or whatever it may be. And so all those things combined make sure that Lajas is able to have a close relationship with his students, which is something that can really help the students achieve more. Also can sometimes frustrate his students, he acknowledged, he said it's not, it's not always something that works, but it's a strategy that works pretty well. An adage is an old saying. It is a saying that often teaches us something about life, like a life lesson. What we want the scholars to do and Dean to do is to share some adages, some old school sayings that we have heard in our family that help us learn life lessons. So Grip, jump it off for us real quick. My favorite one, my favorite one. You got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Talk less and to listen more. <laughs> Yo, <laughs> who used to say that? Mama said? Mama definitely said. All right, now listen. But then the other really special thing about Lajas is the way he empowers his students by rooting their education and their experience. And so he is teaching them about the year that the Star Spangled Banner was written, for example, was in 1812. And Africans weren't free at that time. So who was singing the national anthem? Was the national anthem written for black people? And then he teaches his students, lift every voice and sing which is recognized by many as like the national anthem for black Americans. And that was written in 1900. Scholars, remind me, do we in our approach to our study refer to these Africans as slaves or enslaved Africans? We don't use the term slave because slave is a dehumanizing term. We use the term enslaved Africans because these were people that were enslaved, okay? So Africans were never slaves. Africans were a people who were enslaved, all right? The vocabulary that his students are learning is white supremacist and jubilee. They have to read 12 Years a Slave or Malcolm X's autobiography. And so they're learning everything mandated by the state. Their curriculum includes everything that's mandated by the state. They're not missing anything. They're gaining because he is 
giving this larger, wider context to that state mandated curriculum through the African American history and experience. And what's particularly special about it is that the way he teaches it to his students is not gloom and doom. He really roots it in how strong and powerful African Americans have been throughout US history, everything that they have overcome and everything that they have accomplished despite the constant discrimination and persecution. And so it was just empowering in the most well-rounded way I have I've ever seen a teacher do. I mean, I was sitting there and I was honestly jealous that he was never my teacher growing up. <laughs> What makes Lajas an important story for the segregation and redlining project is that he empowers students in ways that they are often not empowered in our education system. And so when we're talking about quality of life differences for residents in predominantly black neighborhoods and for black residents specifically, and we're looking at the way education plays into that, you cannot underestimate how big of an impact a teacher that believes in you, but also really prepares you for a world that's otherwise designed to hold you back and to keep you down. That importance cannot be underestimated. And sadly, I would say it's pretty unique to find a teacher like that. I think that, you know, one teacher at a time like Lajas can't solve the world and can't solve segregation and redlining, but can certainly help. My chore, I can. read the stories and see the striking images we've collected as part of this reporting project, visit timesunion.com slash a city divided, all one word. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We will have more on the reporting of a city divided next week, along with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. And special thanks this week to Masara Makati and Eduardo Medina for their reporting and contribution to this episode. Mm-hmm.